folks, happy August and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our local business partners for helping to make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and a great, pl- a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. The dining room's not open, but you can get breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week through takeout. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. The uh, lounge is now open for some concerts, and you can also continue to catch their concerts live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome to the program today. Ed Fallon, your host here. You know, between my blog last week, uh, this talk show, uh, and and also the Facebook post I made with a link to that blog and, and to this program, I have had quite a response. <laughs> That's an understatement. So in, in case you missed it, uh, last week from my blog, I wrote and I, I, I spoke about the disturbing scene recently of uh, Black Lives Matter protesters and white power counter protesters in Louisville, Kentucky and in Austin, Texas, uh, both uh, heavily armed, a lot of assault weapons. I called it terrifying. And what I wrote on my blog was this. If this display of force escalates, how is it not going to lead to bloodshed and death? For those who embrace the moral and political necessity of nonviolence, our challenge is to put out the message over and over again that injustice will not be defeated with guns. We defeat injustice with love that is sincere, creative, organized, and disciplined. That's part of what I wrote last week. And... The vast majority of the responses I received were very positive. Well, except on Facebook. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that, that's what Facebook is all about, I guess, is to bring out the worst in us. The, um, and there were some good responses there as well. You know, I, I'd call it mixed. but And again, some very legitimate commentary and, and counterpoint. Um, you know, but also some comments that were pretty harsh. And yeah, let's just be honest, uh, less than kind. Now, my favorite... And I quote, drag those crusty misogynist knuckles back from whence you came. <laughs> okay, I, I love that. It's so colorful. It's, it's um, crusty misogynist knuckles. I mean, maybe my knuckles are a bit crusty from all that, that farm work I'm doing, but my arms aren't quite long enough for them to be dragging. And I guess um, from whence I came describes some kind of cave. I don't know. I'm supposed to get back into a cave. Anyway, I, I, you know, it's hard to take comments like that too seriously, but... There were a bunch of them, (laughs) you know, but again, seriously, we should be able to have a thoughtful and intelligent discussion about how best to fight oppression, how best to fight, you know, injustice and racism. It's, it's about, it's a conversation about violence versus nonviolence, Malcolm X versus Dr. King, Che Guevara versus Mahatma Gandhi, um, Simone Weil versus Dorothy Day. I have you know, great respect for all these revolutionary leaders, the, those who embraced violence, those who didn't. You know, but my heart, my mind, and, and my experience, most important, my experience, placed me firmly in the camp of leaders who embraced nonviolent social change over violence. You know, and that's, for me, it's because you know, there's a moral superiority to nonviolence. I mean, when you talk about the option of of inflicting pain, death, suffering, you know, shooting, bombing, versus trying to accomplish the same goals through something creative and peaceful, I think that's an easy moral 
you know, the, 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 the clear moral superiority there is with the nonviolent approach. But, you know, there's also tactical superiority. Nonviolence works better than violence. Now, there's an analysis by researchers and writers, including Erica Chenoweth, perhaps most um, notably, also Maria Stefan, uh, Paul and Mark Engler from Des Moines. Their, their research, and it's really extensive, indicate that nonviolence is actually more effective, more effective than violent revolution. In a book that um, Chenoweth and Stefan wrote called Why Civil Resistance Works, uh, I'll quote um, what they wrote here. Uh, Between 1900 and 2006, campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts. Now, the authors also, they cited Iran, Palestine, the Philippines, Burma, among a lot of other places. And they point out that, and again I quote, successful nonviolent resistance movements usher in more durable and internally peaceful democracies which are less likely to regress into civil war. They, um, they cite the specific example of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa where organizers um, put together a boycott of white-owned businesses and that became fairly painful for those businesses. And after several months, they were, again, they were hit so hard that uh, the government, who again was largely, you know, acting on behalf of the white uh, element of South Africa, the government had to respond. Now, for the, uh, regarding Paul and Mark Engler and their book, um, This is an Uprising, which uh, I'm assuming several of you, maybe many of you have read. It's a great book. Uh, they write about the success that nonviolent organizers achieved in Serbia. They, they set other examples as well, but the, um, the movement in Serbia was incredibly effective. And, you know, and, all, and most of us, of course, are familiar with Mahatma Gandhi's campaign of nonviolent action in India. You know, there are so many examples. I, I should probably take one example a week and kind of dig into it a bit, but that's, that's as far as I want to go with it today. You know, okay, back to Facebook. <laughs> a couple of the commentators, you know, said straight out that it was time to arm the left. Now, do you, do you really think that's going to work? I mean, do you have any idea how many guns the far right owns? Again, there are more guns than people in the U.S. And most people aren't on the left aren't the ones owning them. So between the radical right and the immense firepower that police forces have, you know, there, there's no way, absolutely no way, you know, except in perhaps some fantasy dream, that the left could ever match that arsenal. You know, you could never prevail in a violent conflict against that kind of armament. You know, I, so I, and I, I understand people's frustration. You know, one person uh, wrote in that Facebook exchange, uh, quote, uh, we've been turning the other cheek for decades just to see little to no progress being made. How much longer do you think that will work? Well, I, I, I don't understand where they're coming from because to say there's no progress? I mean, progress, yeah, it does not come fast enough. Certainly not on racism. It doesn't come fast enough on environmental protection either. Not, not on, a, on a whole bunch of injustices. But yeah, I mean, okay, women's rights, we've got a long ways to go, but look at how far we've come. Look at how far we've come in 100 years. Uh, LGBTQ equality. You know, that curve of progress has moved way faster than most. And it's, you know, it, that's a struggle I've been involved with since 1989 when uh, myself and Cynthia Carver... Uh, 
were able to make our church, uh, Trinity United Methodist Church, the I think it was the only the, the second church in Iowa that became an affirming congregation. And we met some resistance, not as much as we would have thought. <laughs> but, you know, and then in, in 1996, when I spoke against discrimination of the LGBTQ community over the issue of marriage equality, Democrats told me to shut up. They actually found an opponent for me. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I've, I've worked hard to try to try to address concerns all along. And uh, again, I look at the LGBTQ um, curve, and that, that went pretty good. I mean, it, it was a struggle for a long time, and suddenly it took off. And now very few people seem to even care anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's definitely still some discrimination out there. But... Um, yeah, and look back, just back to, um, back to racism. Look at what the nonviolent action movement of the 60s accomplished. The Voting Rights Act. I know there's been efforts to, to scale that back. And, and, and voting rights are certainly under attack right now like never before. But that was a big accomplishment. The Civil Rights Act, big accomplishment. You know, blacks were no longer relegated to separate dining facilities, lodgings, drinking fountains, schools. You know, I mean, for sure... America made a very incomplete advance in the 1960s to a more just society. And, and though we don't like the fact that progress moves slowly, the reality is it does. That is the reality we have to work with. We have to fight as hard as we can to make as much progress to get to justice as quickly and completely as possible. But reality is it usually takes a lot of time. And, you know, but... and. Just looking at the Black Lives Matter movement, look at what it's accomplished already. 31 of America's 100 largest cities have enacted some kind of a policy restricting the use of chokeholds. That's, that's important. 62 of the 100 largest cities now have policies in place of some type along those lines. And 69 now require officers to intervene when a fellow officer uses excessive force. So, I mean, even in just a few months, progress has been made. And again, we need to keep the pressure on because we got a long ways to go. You know, another one last indicator of progress I'll mention regarding racism. Look at how many Democratic presidential candidates spoke in support of restitution last year during the campaign for president. You wouldn't have seen that even just a few years ago. Okay, so um, another comment I'd like to respond to from that Facebook um, post. A quote, I agree that peace and love should reign and that all of our problems can be fixed by simply applying them as a society, but who's going to convince the people trying to threaten to kill us? To implore people to resist life-threatening actions with peace, I feel, is to invalidate the very real fear they have for their lives and their right to protect their lives. You know, I get it. Yeah, I, and I don't for a moment dismiss the reality of that fear. I, you know, having lived in Des Moines' inner city for 19 years, I absolutely know that fear from my black friends, neighbors, constituents. I would never, ever invalidate it. But again, responding to violence with violence, that's what our opponents want. That's what President Trump wants. That's why, I think in, in large part, why he's sending these federal troopers, you know, to make you so mad that you start carrying guns, start responding to their violence with violence. If we do that, in my opinion, we lose. You know, another commentator wrote, whatever tactic white people complain about is likely the tactic that is working. <laughs> They're complaining because it is working, so I would seriously consider continuing to use them. Like you said, don't let white people tell you how to protest. They will only tell you how to waste your time. 
And my response, really? <laughs> so all white people are the enemy? You know, those of us who have been staunch allies in the fight against racism for our entire lives, you think we don't really mean it? You think we want the campaign against racism to fail? You know, that's, that's more cynicism than I can even wrap my mind around. You know, and I'll remind those who've known me for a while, and, and I'll inform those who don't know me, that, you know, I've been in this fight for justice for over three decades. You know, I could go on and on about uh, all I've done fighting side by side with my, again, black friends, neighbors, constituents. I'll just mention a couple things. Juneteenth, you know, I was the lawmaker that introduced that <laughs> resolution in Iowa. I mean, it was already a community event, but there was no state recognition. That was my initiative to recognize it as something that the state considered valuable. Wayne Ford jumped on board when he got elected, and he, he did a great job at he and others to help pushing that. I mean, something else I worked on, advocating for prisoners. Again, that includes, you know, not just black prisoners, but white prisoners. But we know that the, the uh, racial disparity in our prisons is off the charts here in Iowa. I was the only lawmaker that I know of who would go to prisons, not just to visit the staff and the, and the, and the prison itself, but to visit with prisoners and actually created a position uh, with Gene Basinger to be a prison liaison. We, we did a lot of good stuff for people in prison. You know, human services, same thing. A lot of my low-income constituents, not just black families, but white, Latino, and Asian, they were hit hard by unfair DHS practices. And, you know, again, me and my small staff, <laughs> two people really, addressed literally hundreds of individual cases involving some form of injustice. You know, and, and I'm talking about my work here, but... You know, there's a lot of white allies out there everywhere who hunger for an end to racism, who have been fighting to accomplish that. And you achieve nothing by denigrating their commitment and by pretending that only certain, but, but you know, that, that if we suggest a certain tactic like nonviolence, it's because we want the movement to fail. That, that is just uh, off the wall, in my opinion. And another commentator wrote, Ed, take a seat. This is not your fight to condone or condemn. Uh, no, it is my fight. The battle against racism and all the other issues connected with it is a fight that all of us need to be a part of. And you, you, know, you can't ask someone to be involved in a movement and just want them there as a prop. You know, and it just, you know sometimes when, when one crisis rises to the surface, like the crisis of racism, it's easy to forget even the recent past. So in 2016, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe elevated indigenous concerns to the forefront of public opinion. You know, and immediately after Trump was elected, remember folks, the Women's March? All over the country, Women's Marches. In Des Moines, 25,000 people showed up. Unprecedented. You know, and then in 2018, the uh, horrific school shooting in Parkland, Florida. That caused a wave of activism that, you know, while, while it has not yet accomplished the significant reforms in our gun laws that many of us want, at least moved the needle forward. You know, and in 2019, young people occupying congressional office buildings, demanding action on climate change. Uh, that helped make climate change a more prominent role in the presidential campaign, along with the work that longtime environmental leaders and organizations were, were doing on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, every one of these struggles is connected to the Black Lives Matter movement. Every one of these struggles affects every one of us. You know, at some level, in at least one of these arenas, all of us need to be engaged involved, outspoken, and every one of us has not just a role to play, but an opinion that counts and needs to be respected. You know, the bottom line is, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, climate 
the climate crisis, fair housing, uh, income inequality. We need all of us working together if we're going to prevail. Shooting down opinions we don't like with denigrating comments instead of you know, engaging in intelligent conversation. Telling people to sit down and shut up. Disparaging all, quote, white people. Blasting older white males, even those who've been staunch allies for decades. That's just what our opponents on the right want to hear. They want to see us do that. You know, and while I understand and respect your frustration and thus your temptation to take up arms, I ask you to study deeply, to learn from the past, and to consider the superior power of nonviolent action. The, the late John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, uh, who just passed away last week, said it as well as anyone in his farewell address. And of course, he wrote that address before he passed away, but it was read at his, at his funeral. Quote, when historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last, and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. John Lewis, quite a voice for nonviolence and justice. Folks, um, when we come back for, after a short break here, we're going to talk about voting rights, about absentee balloting, with Veronica Fowler of the ACLU of Iowa. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum again. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our local business partners, including Ritual Cafe, 
Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Uh, they're closed in terms of the dining room, but you can still order takeout. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, again, later in the program, we're going to be discussing the Big Meat Boycott Campaign. We'll also be taking a look at some of the controversial statements made in the mainstream press recently regarding salmonella and so-called backyard chickens. For now, though, I want to welcome to the program Veronica Fowler with the ACLU of Iowa. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so uh, this news just out today, this week, um, in Business Insider, uh, the, and this is a, a quote, the president is overtly sabotaging the electoral process, ensuring that whatever the results are, a huge percentage of Americans will doubt them the combination of pandemic, toxic partisanship, and Trump's meddling ensures that we won't fix America's election problems, at least not by this election day. It's becoming clear every day that the mechanics of this election could go horribly wrong. What do you think? Is that overstating it? Well, yes. <laughs> you know, through, through, throughout recent years, there's been very, very little documentation, if any, um, on, on voter fraud. And the types of voter fraud are not impersonation, you know, where you're pretending to be somebody else. It's, always, it's often, in fact, almost always just somebody who's confused that they didn't realize that they couldn't vote because some reason or another. And, and actually, a component of voter fraud is malice that you actually, or you know, intent that you knew that you were committing voter fraud. So, unfortunately, what's happened is politicians um, are aiming a bazooka at a speck of a problem, and we feel are disenfranchising thousands, if not thousands and tens of thousands of people easily in the process. And I think that's the point that some are making, is that because of all those disenfranchisements and all the different ways in which voter suppression is occurring, that we run a real risk of having an election this fall that um, President Trump might just say, well, I told you, it's, it's flawed, it's, uh, it's wrong, it's, uh, it's not a legitimate election, mm-hmm. uh, and that people, mm-hmm. People, mm-hmm. people's votes may not be counted, and the election itself may not be accepted as valid. I, I mean, that, to me, seems like a, a, you know, a, a real problem and a real, you know, a true, a true a possibility in this crazy time. Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that. Um, You know, we're certainly doing everything we can to um, ensure that as many people as possible are able to vote. I mean, there's an old saying that um, voters get to pick politicians. Politicians don't get to pick their voters. But unfortunately, sometimes that seems to be what they're aiming for. Well, with gerrymandering, you could argue that politicians do sometimes pick their voters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't have that in Iowa. And also, yeah. in, in Iowa, we had um, we had a pretty decent, I mean, I know there were some states, New York, for example, and even in California, that had a lot of problems during the primary election. We didn't. And one reason was we, yep. had, we had a ballot mailed to every eligible voter. Or every, every registered Well, we voter. had an uh, important correction or clarification. We had a ballot request, request. Thank form you. Yes, yes. mailed to every voter. Yeah. And so that they, so that it made it, 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 it sort of put it right in front of them on how to, how to request um, right. a ballot rather than having to go online 
or find you know find out more. So it put the information right in front of people right. so that they could request their ballot and more easily vote by mail. And the turnout was huge. Yes, yes, and that and and that was great. We didn't have you know those, those photos of people standing in long lines. Um, right. It it should be easy to vote. We want to encourage as many qualified voters as possible to vote. Yeah. And, and now as a, re- as a result of having such a, a, a fantastic turnout and, 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 and massive participation, we saw a pushback by the Republican legislature here in Iowa. Well, uh, the ACLU is a nonpartisan organization. Right. And so we certainly won't comment on um, motives. Um, That's my when job. We, 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 we can't predict motives, but, but we can certainly talk about outcomes and, and when things are, are implemented, the, the harmful outcomes. Yeah, and so what would you, how would you characterize what the legislature did after the primary election here in Iowa? Well, um, unfortunately, there seemed to be pushback um, on the Secretary of State for mailing um, uh to automatically to all active voters a form that allowed them to ask for um, a ballot to be mailed to them. And and you can go online and get that. Some people have been putting signs up in their yards with ballot request forms. The forms aren't difficult to get, but like with anything else, if somebody puts it right in front of you, yeah. you are more inclined to do it and more inclined to know about it. So I, we I, really, I, I'm that way with really applauded that. And yeah. But then there were some machinations that basically um, um, made it a little more complicated um, for the Secretary of State. Um, HF 2486, it was the bill that um, some people said limited the Secretary's power to mail absentee ballot request forms. It actually limited the Secretary's ability to change election laws only when the secretary was using emergency powers. Yeah. And, and to be clear, so, for, and to be clear for uh, people, the, just to be clear, I'm the, sorry. the secretary of state in Iowa is a Republican. So this was a decision yes. that, that was made, you know, with, with voter interest in mind across the board. There was no, no partisan intent in that uh, decision. Well, again, I, we can't, we can't speak on intent. Um, but the 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 long the, the 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 end result was then that the secretary went to the legislative council, which is um, uh, has Republicans and Democrats on it, and the uh, and made a request a second request to send out the uh, absentee well I shouldn't say second request that that was a, a an initial request, um, and it was granted. And so the the end result is that hurrah, all active voters in Iowa will be mailed these these forms that they they fill out. It just takes a few minutes usually, um, and then they can be mailed their ballot, and um, um, and they don't have to go to the polls physically, so which is, is wonderful for many reasons, not just the fact that we're in a global pandemic. But if you're an older voter and it's hard for you to get a ride or, um, you know, you're working two jobs um, and it's hard to find the time or you have children at home that you need to care for and you don't want to have to leave them or find child care in order to vote, um, being able to vote by mail really assures that some of the most marginalized people, the most 
vulnerable people, the people who have the fewest options are able to vote. So, so basically, so ba- are critically, critically important. So basically, even though after the record-breaking number of people who voted by mail in Iowa's primary this year, after the grum- there was grumbling after the fact, but that grumbling has kind of subsided, and really what's happening now is pretty much the same thing that happened before the primary. Anybody who wants to get a ballot is going to be able to do that, correct? Right, as long as you're a qualified voter, you qualify right. in other ways. Yes. Of course, yeah. You so know, you're the right age, and unfortunately, at this point in time, still, if you have a felony in your background, you may not be, you might not be able to vote. You have to check on that, but we're hopeful that that might change. Right, and well. and Governor Reynolds has said that she would uh, she would change that, and that's 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 been mm-hmm. something that I've been concerned about for a long, long time. And uh, yep. and I and I know right now it's it's achieved new prominence because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and, and Reynolds mm-hmm. has made, the governor has made a commitment to changing that, but we, it kind of remains to be seen whether she'll do that before the election in time for people, uh, and I, well, I want to say it's about 50,000 Iowans that would suddenly then be able able to vote. But I, I don't know yeah, whether... Yeah, the there's... numbers vary because they're estimates, but yeah, or 60,000 or more. Wow. So yeah. definitely tens of thousands of people. So let me ask you this, Veronica. How, how will the, um, what's happening with the U.S. Postal Service right now? I mean... Trump has appointed somebody who is, you know, if not overtly, at least um, implicitly hostile to to a, to the U.S. Postal Service, and uh, there has been there have been allegations of or accusations of um, delivery being slowed in order to help uh, Amazon, for example. And there's concern that um, that uh, since the uh, absentee ballot, the mail-in ballot um, process relies so heavily. On the U.S. Postal Service, if the USPS is compromised, then we may have mm-hmm. another reason why uh, why why the why the system might break down. Are you, are you at all concerned about that? Well, we're always concerned. Any any link of the chain that might not be functioning as well as it might is cause for concern. Um, I think um, I, I'm glad those those problems and those concerns have been raised because. There's still some time to address that. You know, a lot of the the slowdowns have been attributed to reduced staffing levels. Um, So, um, you know, we need to do everything we can to make sure that the Postal Service is functioning as well as possible. I think the bottom line is that we don't want to discourage people from voting by mail. It's still considered a highly reliable method of voting. Um, So definitely we encourage people to fill out their ballot request form and to vote by mail. And there have been several states where this has been going on for some time without any identifiable problems. Oregon comes to mind, Washington. Iowa. Iowa's had absentee voting for quite a while, and um, it's it, the perception is that it's worked very well. Yeah. And again, there are states where, I mean, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Oregon, everybody votes by mail, period. That might be correct. I don't know what okay. the Oregon, yeah. the Oregon yeah. situation is. Anyway. So the, um, the the concerns that some people have are that um, that uh, again there may be enough um, it may be possible to cast enough doubt on the integrity of the election that there might be a decision by the president or maybe some other interest in suggesting that the results are invalid. Uh, mm-hmm. Is is that a concern that the ACLU has is addressed at all or prepared to address or? 
Is that on your radar so, yet, or course, is it too speculative? It's, yes, and it's one reason we fight for um, voting integrity every step of the way. Um, and we want to make sure that, that the people who are qualified to vote can vote and that their votes are counted. Um, uh, you know, what, how our president chooses to react to election results, I don't think it, no, anyone's going to know um, until that reaction actually happens. Um, but but certainly we can work on the back end of the process again to make sure that as many people are educated as possible about how to vote by mail. We can continue to advocate for uh, to end felony disenfranchisement. Um, we can certainly advocate to um, keep the absentee ballot voting process as open as inclusive as possible. Yeah, and another reason this upcoming election is so important is because we're looking at. The uh, next census being hopefully, hopefully the next census being completed with integrity, and of course that mm-hmm. that will affect uh, what happens with redistricting. And uh, I mean yeah. Iowa, Iowa, we do it pretty well here. We don't uh, gerrymander, but there are a lot of states, uh, not all Republican either. Some states were Democratic majorities gerrymander as well, but it has primarily been a problem in states controlled by Republican legislatures, and that you mm-hmm. know, and that. Um, It'd be really nice to have legislatures at the state level that we have some confidence in that they're not going to do that. Well, yes, it would be nice. It would <laughs> be nice. But voting is important. And, you know, since the, the history of the vote, there have been groups that have tried to limit it. Um, you know, this year we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment and women being able to vote. Right. And that was a hotly contested topic. Right. Um, Hard to believe. So there, there were, that, you know, and obviously that was a form of voter suppression as well. Right. Voter suppression, unfortunately, is nothing new. <laughs> well, Veronica, thank you uh, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Folks, we've been talking with Veronica Fowler with the American, uh, with the uh, ACLU of Iowa. There we go. And uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, Mike Carberry with the Organic Consumers Association is going to join us as we discussed uh, the, uh, the Big Meat Boycott campaign, which uh, seems to be gaining some momentum. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in to today. Now, 
Uh, before we launch on our conversation, I got to thank a couple of our nonprofit sponsors that helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Bold Iowa fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, later in the program, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to talk about a recent um, study regarding salmonella in chickens, with the concern being that it's the backyard chicken issue that's causing a lot of the problem. We'll talk about that in the final segment of today's program. But right now, I want to, walk, I want to welcome Mike Carberry to the program. Mike is with the Organic Consumers Association and involved with the association's Boycott Big Meat campaign. Mike, welcome to the program. It's great to be on, Ed, <clears throat> and thank you for having me on. I, I think I've been on your show or your podcast uh, numerous times, mostly talking about climate change, I imagine, uh, over the last uh, 15 years or so. Yeah, well, and it would have to be the last 10 years because we've, we've, only, we've only been doing this since 20, 2009. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe that's 11 just, years. Maybe it just seems longer. <laughs> right. You know, I was rounding up, I guess. But, yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm, sure. I'm a big fan. Now, I know that the, the campaign, the, the Boycott Big Meat campaign, it's a national effort. It's, a, it's an educational effort, but it's also a lobbying effort to kind of uh, push forward the whole transition from the, the, the current industrial and centralized meat production system to one that's more focused on organics, on sustainability, on grass-fed beef, grass, you know, uh, pasture-raised poultry. And um, the idea being to to create an agricultural system that's more more you know more small scale, more local, um, more friendly to the environment, uh, and 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 my impression is that a lot of this originated with concerns about how the big packing plants were treating uh, workers. A lot of them immigrant workers. A lot of those Latino immigrants uh, who had uh, who saw COVID infection rates off the charts. I mean that's where our biggest COVID infection locations in Iowa have been at the meatpacking plants. So right. um, I, I want to make sure I have the, the yeah, um, history yeah, of it right. It, uh, you got it right, Ed. Uh, you know, I've been fighting factory farms in the state of Iowa for maybe that's the 15 years. That's the number I had in my <laughs> that's, mind. That's very probable. Uh, starting in about 2005, I was working with Dave Murphy and another other groups on, uh, on fighting factory farms, also known as CAFOs. And, you know, the state of Iowa, we're, we're now up to over 25 million hogs, and we still have 3 million people. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the issues that that's created, uh, water quality, air quality, um, health effects of neighbors, quality of life, and, you know, even, uh, even real estate values for uh, surrounding properties. I mean, so the, our economic, uh, our, our food, meat-based system here uh, with, with these confinements, has just uh, has devastated the state of Iowa in so many ways. And then when the COVID-19 crisis hit, it really exposed our food system for being completely broken, and especially the meat system. And you had already mentioned the, the COVID hotspots that we had at Tyson Plants and uh, some of the other plants around the state, you know, with the, in these large slaughterhouses where, I mean, these slaughterhouses have never been known to, <laughs> to be... Uh, great places to work i mean yeah they're very oppressive very abusive to the workers they work long hours under very dangerous conditions in very tight quarters and 
they did not take the precautions that they needed. They didn't slow the lines down. They didn't separate the workers. And we had all these COVID hotspots. And, and, and then, and then it, there was, there was denial. another thing that exposed the meat system, not only the way that we raised the meat in these factory farms, but the way that it's processed in these slaughterhouses. And there was a lot of denial, too. The, the packing plants weren't, weren't willing to admit what was going on. They, oh, weren't absolutely. Will, they, they weren't willing and, to uh, confess. They were fudging happening. the numbers. Fudging numbers. It's come out since some, uh, some of the, uh, the hots twice as bad as we initially thought. And I believe our, our governor, COVID Kim, was working hand in hand with them to maybe hide uh, some of the atrocities and some of those numbers. Now, you know? I, I know what one of the initial organizations to respond to the the injustice of uh, so many frontline workers at the meatpacking plants being inf infected was the uh, League of United Latin American Citizens um, yes. uh, chapter or local 307 here in Des Moines. And um, you're, you're still working with them? Yeah, that's correct. They actually inspired this, uh, this boycott big meat campaign. So um, this spring, Joe Henry and some of the other folks that are with LULAC reached out to us. Uh, many of the groups I work with were an alliance uh, that fights uh, factory farms called the Iowa Alliance for responsible agriculture. And they reached out to us about a, a campaign they called Meatless May. Right. And what they wanted to do was to boycott meat of all kinds uh, in, entirely uh, throughout the month of May and especially on Mondays, uh, Meatless May Mondays, I think. And since I had, at that time was working for both the Organic Consumers Association and the Iowa Farmers Union promoting regenerative agriculture, um, that was a kind of a no-go for us at, at first because regenerative agriculture, one of the things that it does best is sequester carbon. And one of the ways it does that is by putting uh, animals stock back on pastures and getting them out of those confinements. So we said to Joe, I said, Joe, we really can't buy into a meatless campaign, but we, if you specify what kind of meat then maybe we can work with you. And we started throwing around a couple different ideas about corporate meat, industrial meat, and none of that really, you know, had the alliteration that I like. And sitting around, uh, you know, middle of April, and uh, I said, hmm, I said, you know, always you've worked on against big oil before and big pharma and big, and we've always talked about big ag. And then I started kicking around the idea of big meat and big food, which I've talked about. And I said, you know, I've heard the phrase big meat, but it's not often used. So I started Googling it and a couple people had been using it. And I said, but that's a, that's actually a term that we really should start using more. Yeah. So I went on to GoDaddy and found that, that the uh, websites were available, boycottbigmeat.org and then ban big meat and a few other things. And so I bought up about 15 URLs. I uh, pitched, pitched the campaign to the Organic Consumers Association. Uh, they said, oh, that's an amazing thing, uh, campaign that we could run. And we launched it in Iowa with uh, Lou Locke as, uh, as, as, as signed on. But so I'm, 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 I'm going to guess. This uh, is actually Forward Latino, which is a national group right. that Joe is also involved with. Mike, I'm going to guess that, uh, that, that maybe some of the um, vegan groups, maybe even... The, maybe PETA, maybe the uh, Humane Society, maybe they preferred the earlier version where all, the, all meat was being boycotted. So Yes, what yes. and what they a, stayed with that campaign. So LULAC is part of two different campaigns. One of them is boycott all meat campaign, uh, and that's fine. But it was not something that we as regenerators, if you will, that we could really 
behind. Now, we understand that eating too much meat is not healthy. The average American eats about 220 pounds of meat a year. Now, you know, meat, and I'm throwing in poultry as well. Uh, that's probably too much. And maybe we should, uh, for health reasons, maybe we should eat a little less meat. Maybe the meatless Mondays and the tofu Tuesdays. Those aren't bad things. But also this portion size of the meat that we eat is probably too big. No one needs 16-ounce steaks. You know, how about, you well, know. I, I will tell you, my, I will tell you the, Mike, the, the size one, of a deck of cards. They Mike, say, the one, That's supposed to be a portion of meat. Hey, Mike, the one, uh, the one time when I would say I probably needed a 16-ounce steak was when I was walking across the country. Absolutely. <laughs> it's probably the only time I could ever eat that much to, to meat. To walk with you at least all the way across Johnson County. Yeah, that was that. And was, I, you know, that was, for that stuff was a three days for me, but my blisters had blisters on them. So <laughs> I, I really so, appreciate that, and I, I love so, the book that you so, wrote so, about so, that. Thank you. Experience. So let me, let me ask you this before we run out of time. Is that, sure. Um, this is not a not a flash in the pan campaign. I mean, nope. again, they, it grew in response to conditions at the packing plants, but right. it's a campaign that is broader. And um, are you really trying to get people to boycott to sign to sign any kind of a pledge to indicate that they have right. they, they they have agreed not to imbi- not to buy meat from industrial sources? Is that part of the the initiative? That is that is correct. We do have a petition. Our website is. Uh, www.boycottbigmeat.org. How many people and, are signed on? What was that? How many people are signed on? I think over 8,000 so far. But we only launched the campaign on uh, July 15th, so it's only been out there a couple weeks. We have uh, about 75 different organizations have signed on so far. And so, and about 8,000 people have signed the uh, personal petition. And there's a lot of great information on the website, and we're working on even more. But you are this, is, this campaign is twofold. One is consumer education. What is big meat? How do I identify it? How do I avoid it? Well, one of the best ways to do it is, is not to eat fast food because all the meat that comes from fast food restaurants is big yeah, meat. For sure. Another thing is, is that when you do go to a grocery store, what are the labels to avoid? And also, how do I read a label? If it says grass-fed or pasture-raised, that's pretty good. If it says healthy or natural, that, that's, that's that means nothing at all. That means meat, nothing at know? all anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and then of course, you know, eating at locally uh, restaurants that are locally owned and sourced from local farmers. Now, one of the biggest things that we have part of this campaign is that we have a map, an interactive map on the website that you can put your address in, and then you can actually put in things like I'm looking for farmers that I can buy chicken from, or I'm looking for f- local farmers that I can buy beef from. And we're constantly adding farmers onto that regeneration map. And, and of course, people can always, you know, use the Googles if they will. Uh, you know, they have uh, search engines know where you are when you search. Yeah, but, that's, you know, that, that's kind of frightening. Like but grass-fed anyway. farmer, grass-fed <laughs> farmers or grass-fed beef. And you'd be surprised how many farmers come up around the Des Moines area yeah. or around the Iowa City area. But we give uh, people help on our website to find some. Uh, there's other ways to find others. You know, farmers markets usually have a local farmer selling locally raised beef at uh, their meats. And uh, but it's really knowing your farmer is, is the way to do it. And then you, you know, you're supporting local agriculture. The supply chains are, are a lot shorter. And, you know, one of the issues then is then, of course, is the processing. 
we need to work and rebuild our our system in this country where local meat lockers and small and medium-sized meat processing plants can yeah. be reopened. You know, we used to have we used to have those in in so many small towns across the state of Iowa, and then then right. and, and then of course as the consol as, as the packers consolidated both processing and production, those yeah. small businesses were forced out, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how you move from our current system back to something that that sustains well, that slowly, but it would be... slowly is the word and it, it's a, a just transition a lot of this in corporate uh, uh cory booker has a uh, a bill called the uh, farm system reform act that is a, a moratorium on new and uh existing uh, new and, uh, uh expanded cafos uh right away but it phases out cafos over a 20-year period and then includes buyouts for farmers that are already uh, basically knee deep in in this uh, factory farm system because they take out million dollar loans yeah. to build these uh, football sized you know kfos and how do you get out of that if once you're locked in you're like in it for life but uh, this bill offers buyouts that's good so this is a very important part of the campaign is working on legislation there's a piece of legislation that uh, deals with a lot of the worker protection uh, fiasco that's going on in not only factory farms, but in these slaughterhouses. And that's a bill we're working on called the COVID-19 Every Worker Protection Act of 2020. So, and that offers protections for a lot of those workers. So, Mike, uh, before we go before, before we got to run to a break here, um, yeah. we're running out of time. Real quick, um, where do people go if they want to learn more about the campaign or if they want to sign up to be a part of it? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Ed. Uh, our website is boycottbigmeat.org. Boycottbigmeat.org. And again, yes. they can sign up to participate in the campaign and they can learn yes. more about the details. Absolutely. Great. Folks, we've been talking with Mike Carberry with the Organic Consumers Association about the, uh, the Boycott uh, Big Meat campaign. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Different animal angle. We're going to be talking about chickens and salmonella with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Back in a minute. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's h-o-q-table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, thanks to our local business partners who helped make this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store. And the dining room's closed, but there's still a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. You can order takeout seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. 
With 30 years of experience specializing in cutting edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including super insulated structures made from grain bins. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, welcome back to the program. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. As popularity of backyard chickens continues to explode, guess what? Detractors are pushing back. Well, I, I think it was a subtle kind of detraction. The The CNN article that first came to my attention, and there are many others around the state, are in response to a CDC report about an increase in salmonella infections in the U.S., and they are linking it via interviews and things with the people affected to backyard poultry. Well, um, the, the, the interesting part of the article that I saw to me was that um, they quote about 900 people in 48 states have been infected, and um, uh, the number of people who got sick, one person died. This is, this is not good. Salmonella is a serious problem. But at the end of the article that CNN put out, they indicate the CDC didn't speculate why more people have been infected in 2020 than in years past. And to me, that, that just seems to imply that backyard poultry has become more infectious for salmonella, and that couldn't be the case because, as we know, Ed, be, uh, we, we have chickens, and people called us when the pandemic broke out, the COVID pandemic, looking for advice in starting up their own chicken operations in their backyards. And some of the hatcheries were sold out. They, they ran out of chicks because people were interested in, you know, in doing more to secure their own food independence. So I'm curious about this. 900 people uh, were sickened by salmonella. Mm -hmm. Over what period of time does it say? Um, as it said, this is last week. As of this week, 938 people had been infected in 2020. Oh, in 2020. Uh, right. The cases had nearly doubled in the previous month, meaning June. 473 people got sick since the last case report in June. And does that does the do the numbers break down in terms of how many people were sickened by salmonella from their backyard chickens, or how many people were sickened by big confinement operators like AJ DeCosta, who was so guilty a few years ago that he and his son were sentenced to prison mm -hmm. <laughs> for the, uh, the the salmonella outbreak that they caused through through intentional you know negligence. Did they mention that? Well, they do. They, <laughs> they, they do. say okay, the, presumed, the presumed culprit in this outbreak is poultry. Public health officials interviewed over 400 of the people who fell ill with salmonella, and 74% of them said they'd come in contact with chicks and ducklings. And in a lot of those cases, they were talking about backyard chicken operations. However, the uh, as you said, the hatcheries were sold out of chicks, the hardware stores have been selling out of the supplies to set up a coop and a pen, mm -hmm. the feeders, the waterers, and understandably, in a pandemic, more and more people are interested in backyard poultry because they didn't know where their eggs were going to come from anymore. They, they wanted to have something to do at home that would be gratifying for them while they were isolating. 
But if you have more people suddenly starting their own operations, you're going to have an increase in what is a normal, probably um, a very normal level of a salmonella associated with backyard compared to the big outbreaks well, like you mentioned at Yeah, if people don't know what they're doing, if you're just learning the process, you might make some mistakes that you know wouldn't protect you against that risk. But, you know, I mean, I don't, uh, I've been raising uh, hens for, what, 20 years now? 25 years? 25 years, yeah. And I've, <laughs> we've never had a problem. And uh, I probably know 50 or more uh, backyard chicken producers in Des Moines, hen, layer, mm-hmm. laying hens. Not a single one has had a problem. But, you know, again, I can understand, I suppose, if you don't know what you're doing, if you, uh, if you store your feed incorrectly, if you don't um, do anything to protect against the possibility of mice getting into the, the coop, then you might have a problem. But, uh, you, know, let, you know, there's a lot more attraction to, uh, to backyard hens besides the, the local food self-reliance. The eggs are much better quality. I mean, when you, you can, my, my son grew up eating uh, eggs from our hens. And when he first went off to college, he wrote back that he could not, he could not believe that that was a, really an egg that they were serving him. <laughs> well, there's nothing He was to so it. spoiled on high quality eggs with deep, rich yolks and, and intense flavor and, and high values of nutrition. You know, there's also for us as, as organic farmers, mm-hmm. the, um, the value we get from the manure is... It's hard to measure. I even know one vegan farmer who raises hens so she can get the manure. Uh, that is a, a, a huge asset to anybody trying to raise uh, crops organically who needs compost. Well, it's true that the, the major offenders to salmonella non-protection have been the big operators. And yes, in 2010, the DeCoster farm was, was, you know, finally in 2015, they were um, Let's not call it a farm. Okay. <laughs> Production. Industrial factory. Yes. Or yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, the CDC's report does, as they always do, indicate what the safety measures are. And when a, when a lot of people suddenly start to take on a hobby and they don't research it well, they don't get mentors. If you're starting your own chicken uh, operation, get a mentor. Get somebody who's done it successfully for years. And we've been mentoring some people who've started theirs. Um, of course, washing your hands using different shoes to go in that chicken pen than you would wear in your home. Don't kiss your chickens. That was one of the main, oh, yeah, yeah. That was right, one okay. of the main things in the in the articles. They always they have pictures of people kissing the chickens. You know, um I think that's a good idea in general. You know, I touch them. I don't, I don't I don't I don't kiss them. I do touch them and then I wash my hands afterwards. Yes, know? and when we have uh yeah. when we have children come in to learn about the poultry that we have in our um, pen and coop and go help find eggs, we always have them wash their hands afterwards. So I think the main thing is, um, you know, just just use precaution, learn about it. You go on the CDC site and look at the recommendations for safety and um, and handling the eggs. Carefully. When I read a story like that, that, um, that seems biased against backyard chickens, I always have to wonder, well, um, who are CNN's advertisers? And are some of them the big operators that depend on industrial egg. I don't know. I, I, and I haven't had time and don't have time to research that, but I, I wonder. It reminds me of our trip to the State Fair two years ago oh, when gosh. we went to the, um, the, the building with the, 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 the poultry display. They had, you know, hatching and, and poultry, and they had a lot of posters up about the difference between clean industrial, clean and safe industrial chicken <laughs> farming versus uh, 
free range versus backyard, which was depicted as really dirty and unsafe. Disease prone. It was such a lie. Lack of care for your hens, you know, exposing them to all kinds of risks. The state fair should be ashamed of itself for allowing such a lopsided and inaccurate presentation that it, was that was just wrong but again who's got the money yeah you know backyard poultry producers aren't going to be ponying up the kind of money that the state fair demands i've been talking to <laughs> folks vendors. from the state fair and from the egg council to try to figure out where the information from those posters came from and we haven't really tracked it down <laughs> yeah. uh covered seems, their tracks <laughs> seems to be a mystery and there is no state fair this year so um that's unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, we're going to miss it. Story. I wanted to go back to that display and see if they still have those posters up and do some more digging about who's spreading all the um, fear about mm. backyard poultry. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have so many um, neighbors and uh, visitors to our neighborhood here in Des Moines uh, walking past the house through the alley and they look at the chickens and the kids have a great learning experience from it. Uh, the boy today was trying to guess out of Uh, 17 hens, how many eggs we would have in the morning. He said 20. Well, he was only five, and it was not a bad guess. I said, well, it's less than 10, and he guessed eight. We had four in there, so we talked about how four was half of 10, and he got to look at the eggs. and and, uh, Four is half of 10? We talked about... Who taught you math? (laughs) I mean, four is half of eight. Did I say Uh, four is half of 10? I think so. Maybe not. I'll go back and listen to this. Maybe it's a hearing problem on my part. So the the education that, that kids get, and adults... When they see a backyard operation, is part of part of a valuable learning experience, and mm. especially now when, who knows what kind of learning opportunities the kids are going to have this year, maybe maybe just take them to farms all the time and let them learn a lot, and uh, you know, uh, they can learn math and construction and agriculture and chemistry and biology. Uh, just take them to farms. We're in a really interesting time uh, historically, uh, a really troubling time. And you think of other times when our country has been in, in, in a pickle, so to speak. And one of them was World War One, mm-hmm. And uh, a, a, a huge campaign during World War One was to encourage every family, urban and rural, to have at least two chickens per person. It was patriotic. It was patriotic. It was the way to help in the war effort. It was the way to help to, to secure food, um, you know, food uh, independence for your family. And that makes a lot of sense these days as well. <laughs> Kathy, thanks for joining us. And folks, thanks for tuning in to today's program. Again, uh, we broadcast uh, every week. There's a podcast available at www.fallonforum.com. You can also hear the program on KHOI 89.1 in Ames and KICI-FM in Iowa City. And we broadcast on various stations involved with the Pacifica Network around the country as well. And this section, this segment will be posted on Facebook. If you'd like to sign up to receive uh, emails about the program and the weekly blog that I put out, check out, uh, just send me an email, ed, ed at fallonforum.com. That's ed at fallonforum.com. Again, thanks for tuning in, folks. Talk to you next week.